0: Hello and welcome to Within Normal Limits, Copic's podcast featuring discussions of patient safety in the modern healthcare world. I'm your host, Eric Zacharias, a risk manager and patient safety consultant for Copic, as well as a practicing internal medicine physician. Thank you for listening and helping us further Copic's mission of improving medicine in the communities we serve. So we're really excited today to have an expert in memory and cognitive impairment and alzheimer's disease and normal aging and all aspects of this fear that's in our mind uh is is the aging process that i'm going through normal uh, dr alan zacharias who is a neurologist in boulder colorado and so this is going to be an add-on to some of the discussion we had with jeff Arnell on some of the concerns uh, regarding the aging process when is it time to hang up your scalpel And really, when's it time to uh, get medical attention and care? What should you be worried about? What should you not be worried about? So, Alan, thanks a lot for joining us on uh, Within Normal Limits. It's good to have you here.
1: Thanks. Great to be here. Appreciate it.
0: And some of you might have noticed we have a similar last name that's just purely coincidental. Um, So let's start with – actually, he's my brother. Uh, So let's let's start with the absolute basics. So we'll start with normal aging. And, you know, certainly a question that comes up a lot in my internal medicine practice, and I'm sure in referrals to your neurology practice, are uh, patients who are worried about their memory. They're, they're having issues, memory concerns. How, how do you describe normal aging? When does it start? What are some of the, uh, the hallmarks of short-term remote memories, et cetera, uh, that we would consider normal aging?
1: Well, normal aging is unfortunately something that's inevitable for all of us. There's a general sense that it starts deteriorating in terms of brain cells even as early as 20, but we're not aware of it at that point. And it's as we get older when we start really thinking, wait a minute, how come I can't remember that? That's much closer typically to our 40s and 50s. I think for the vast majority of individuals, it's somewhere in your 50s you start to have those Moments where you can't think of the name of the actor. You can't remember, what was that film we saw yesterday? You're having conversations with somebody, and you see a friendly face, and you can't come up with a person even if you know them. Those kind of things are normal. Uh, Trouble coming up with a word now and then, pausing to think of it, that's also considered normal. One of the hallmarks of normal aging and trying to retrieve information is that You work the problem. You think about it for a few minutes, you try to give yourself some clues, and you work around it. And within usually 10 or 15 seconds, you say, ah, got it. Now I know who it is. Particularly important in distinguishing normal aging from what we start to worry about in the office, is it really impacting somebody's life? Is it keeping them from keeping their job or their relationship or friends talking about it in a way that's more serious? If it's not, most of the time, That's the kind of story we'll hear for normal aging.
0: So when I misplace my keys and I have no idea where they are, and a month later I find them in the pocket of a jacket that I wore a month ago, uh, is that uh, something I should be uh, really afraid of?
1: No, it's just very annoying, and you can (laughs) surprise yourself at how often you say, wow, I actually left it there.
0: Does the fact that I have three or four sets of keys mean that uh, since I'm thinking three moves ahead, that I actually am normal aging?
1: No, that's normal. You're prepping for your own uh, fallibility. And one of the things we all tend to do is keep a routine. So sure enough, if you change your routine, you switch cars with your partner and, oh, guaranteed, you are not going to get it right when you try to remember, where was that car? Wait, where's my car? Then you remember, oh, I drive someone else's car you never do it so as soon as you break a routine pretty likely you're going to have an error and there's going to be some laughter about it in the normal circumstances
0: yeah for sure though no, I, I and i suppose the fact that you recognize it and can poke fun at yourself is almost a good sign i don't know if that's uh, diagnostic or at least suggestive that it's normal aging because i tell patients you know if you recognize that you're having some changes but it's not actually affecting relationships your functionality that's probably a good sign that it's normal is that reasonable to tell them
1: it is reasonable to tell people obviously at the beginning stages of any decline you're going to have the same basic complaints whether it's normal aging or the beginning of alzheimer's and neither you nor your doctor can possibly know at that moment from just the symptom of i feel forgetful whether that's going to head to something in one five ten or twenty years we don't we don't have that ability from just the complaint itself
0: you know, a lot of times I'll check labs. Obviously, I'll look for underlying medical conditions. If someone says they have memory issues, the last thing I'm going to do is say, no, you don't, it's normal, By I'm going to say it's probably normal, and let's do some basic tests. We'll check the thyroid metabolic panel. We'll look for metabolic endocrine disturbances. Uh, we'll see if there's any un- other underlying conditions. Here's the big question, because everybody wants this. When do they get the MRI?
1: Right, so that depends on multiple factors. Uh, First, I agree completely for the primary care or the specialist. We want to know, are the basic common problems already assessed? Making sure this person doesn't have thyroid dysfunction, doesn't have liver disease, isn't dealing with chronic substance abuse problems, mood disorders, and the rest of the normal screening. to figure out, well, why might someone be having troubles? Then the inevitable question of, should I image everybody who comes in and says, I feel I have a memory problem? Uh, the short answer is no. Everyone doesn't need an MRI or CT, for that matter, who's just starting with a complaint. And if your assessment is, this doesn't fall in the realm of worry, most of us have an internal thought that says, I think I'm a little worried here, or not. Um, from the provider's perspective, that's often pretty straightforward. Now, if the person's particularly worried, to the point of, I'm pretty convinced I have a brain tumor because my parent had a brain tumor, and I heard that that can be the first stage. In fact, it was missed in my mother. Those people are going to get an MRI every, every time for me. Because Without a doubt. <laughs> it's just important to say, hey, let's alleviate some anxiety here because I could be wrong, and I don't know for sure that you don't have a problem, but usually that open discussion of, I don't think you need it, how do you feel about that, goes pretty well most of the time.
0: Yeah, no, that's a those those are good points. And at one fact I've always wanted to know if this is accurate or not. Maybe you don't know the answer to this. I've never asked you, so here I am on air asking you this. I tell patients all the time, you know, there's a reason why there's no grandmaster chess champions over the age of fifty five. Your memory declines. Now, I totally made that up, uh, yeah. but I use it all the time, and it's at least uh, apocryphal if not accurate. Uh, are you have you ever heard that?
1: Well, I've heard similar ideas that. We do have a drop-off a little bit as we get older, and I haven't heard that particular discussion of the grandmaster chess player, but sure, I'll go with that. Yeah, it's you re- need a, reasonable yeah, to that.
0: You, need, you need a better internist, somebody who uh, just throws out random facts. I apologize to all my patients about that, but I totally made that up. Um, yeah. So let's go down to the next stage of things, uh, which is mild cognitive impairment. Now this varies, this is different, than normal aging Uh, give us a little background so for the physician the surgeon who misplaces their keys probably no worry the physician or surgeon who's talking about a movie they saw last week and they can't remember the name of it or somebody who pulls up a movie on netflix and they realize oh my gosh i saw this four years ago it takes them about 20 minutes in the movie to realize they've already seen it that's all probably normal What's, what's mild cognitive impairment? What are some of the, the differences between those? What are some of the hallmarks of uh, cognitive impairment?
1: So a little background on that term, mild cognitive impairment uh, arose many years ago when we were trying to understand how to separate Alzheimer's disease from something less than Alzheimer's disease, but not normal. So it fell in that so-called gray zone. And at a more sophisticated level, People got together who study uh, brain dysfunction and memory disorders and said, let's let's have a category that we can utilize for research purposes so we're, when we're investigating individuals who might develop Alzheimer's in the future, we ought to have a name for that. And we didn't want to call it pre-Alzheimer's because we didn't know for sure if that were the precursor. That's how the term arose. And by definition, these are individuals who have impairment that doesn't significantly infect activities of daily living and it is the example of yes they might have forgotten where they parked their car they might have forgotten to go to their golf game when they had it scheduled but they do remember that they forgot and it's not usually the case that they can't recall that they even had one it's just they're embarrassed when it happens but it isn't really normal to forget those events But as long as they aren't the predominant aspect of your day-to-day life and you still carry on in your work fairly well, then most of the time that's going to be in the mild cognitive impairment category. A key point is it also doesn't always mean a precursor for Alzheimer's. It can be a precursor for other neurodegenerative diseases of various types, but it is a signal that you need to be alerted to this person having a potential future problem, and that, that changes the discussion as well as the workup a bit.
0: Yeah, and MCI is certainly something that I see in a lot of patients, and it is almost always associated with a description of missing more than just something simple, but actual executive tasking failures where they do miss appointments or they forget that they have a work workday uh, or they get lost driving home. Uh, th- those are some of the hallmarks that I suppose – If someone's experiencing those, we would recommend coming in for an evaluation. This is not just misplacing your car keys. Are there any other kind of classic MCI, not uh, full-on Alzheimer-type symptoms or complaints that you'll hear in your office?
1: Uh, Yes, sometimes, but it's more often that the spouse or significant other says, wait a minute, um, you told me that story earlier. And I'm a little worried about that. And they may not voice it to them. So it's the uh, collateral information that often tips me towards there's more of a problem than not. And often in this stage, a person may not even recognize they have an issue. So if it starts coming up in that sense, then I'm thinking, okay, this defensiveness there demonstrating makes me a little worried because a spouse has no agenda, even though they might say, oh, uh, why are you bringing this up? Because first of all, I don't have a problem. So we get into that defensiveness mode. Sometimes we wouldn't see with normal aging.
0: Yeah. And this probably fits just all categories of patients. But what I try to do when somebody has a MCI or even normal aging, I'll, I'll say, look, now's an opportunity to optimize your overall health. Let's, Let's agree that changes in your vascular system could adversely affect your brain, so let's control your cholesterol, let's control your blood pressure, your your diabetes. Uh, Make sure that if there's other vascular risk factors, we've we've addressed those. Uh, Let's make sure that if there's depression, anxiety, or other conditions, we try to get those under control. Let's try to optimize your sleep and any other medical conditions, control those as best as possible which, of course, then gets you in that circular issue of, oh, great, now you're on four medications, so all of which these drugs can have drug-drug interactions, so then that kind of begs the question, uh, am I doing more harm than good by having somebody on polypharmacy? I'm sure that gets, uh, that gets really complicated. But do you have any other ideas for uh, prevention or trying to stabilize MCI other than those things I just outlined?
1: Well that is a good outline. I think the the way we do think about it is let's optimize the increase in social interaction, intellectual engagement, physical engagement and a healthy diet. Those are the pillars of success for individuals. If you're preloaded with a lot of education, you're helping yourself. If you're preloaded with good genes, that's great luck, but you can't control your genes. And if you already have good general physical health, then you're ahead of the game. But for those individuals who realize that they're having a challenge, um, we emphasize keep up the good work or let's talk about how to change your lifestyle in a way that will help. And certainly 45 to 50 years of bad living won't be erased after an office visit. And you don't tell people that. You give them optimism and say, hey, let's let's make a change. Let's do something that's going to lead to a better outcome for you and as much as anything, sell the fact that cardiovascular disease and cancer remain higher risks of death than you getting a dementia. So let's really use this as a chance to give you some guidance for longer life with quality of life, whether or not you ever develop
0: dementia. Yeah, I love the fact that optimization of those health factors, the good diet, the the, the social interaction, being with people you enjoy, getting enough sleep, all those are positive and favorable for Uh, reducing the risk of uh, of any dementia, as best you can reduce the risk. Now, let's talk about the one that scares everybody, myself included, uh, Alzheimer's disease. What is Alzheimer's disease and how common is it?
1: Alzheimer's disease is extremely common. Um, We have some projections in 2020, we may have 450 million people worldwide affected, at least a few million people in the United States already affected, It is a prevalent disease. So as the boomers age, we're getting ready to be overwhelmed with this. Um, Alzheimer's disease is a form of dementia. I I know all of our medical listeners will recognize this, but sometimes people will come in and say, well, my mother had uh, um, Alzheimer's, but I know she didn't have dementia. And I spent some time saying, well, dementia is the general umbrella term. And dementia means you have lost cognitive function in more than one sphere of cognition, could be memory plus executive function or visual-spatial skills, to the level that is affecting your activities of daily life, therefore impactful on your ability to take care of yourself. Not severe at the early stages, but it advances. And so definition for dementia is that. Now, the most common type of dementia is Alzheimer's probably in the range of 70 to 75% of all cases of dementia, are Alzheimer's disease, classically onset after the age of 65. But if there's a strong family history, particularly if there are known family members affected before that age, then we get into a different category of genetic forms of the disease, which exists, but that's only about a percentage of all, all, all Alzheimer's cases fall in that category.
0: And I know this is a clinical diagnosis. Microscopically, there's the neuronal loss. There's the amyloid plaques. Uh, there's a classic neurofibrillary tangles. Now, you're not going to do that to diagnose somebody. So let's say one of our physician listeners or any of our listeners are concerned that, gosh, you know, I'm having some functional issues. I left the oven on, left the door open, keep on leaving the garage door open, get lost. Right. What how, What are you going to do to test them? How are you going to find out if, if somebody has uh, Alzheimer's disease? Well, the
1: background is clinically, um, with collateral information, you're going to probably be able to figure it out clinically up to 90% of the time will be right just based on the story. But you want to do absolute rule outs like a structural lesion. So at that stage, I'm always going to get a CT or an MRI, optimally MRI, but for people who can't get an MRI for various reasons, we'll go with a CT. Some 10% to 15% of people might have a treatable, identifiable condition, for example, normal pressure hydrocephalus in the early stages. Someone could have a malignant or benign tumor. Someone might have unrecognized subdural hematomas or multiple strokes. And when you see that, it's going to change your workup and potentially you'll have something you can do about it. You'll also hit all those classic tests of laboratory studies, B12 deficiencies, thyroid disease. Most of the time, there are other clinical clues, but you're going to do all of those things, and maybe, maybe not do formal neuropsychological testing, depending on your level of suspicion. You may not need it, but with all that data, if everything else is ruled out, then you're very likely to be accurate on getting the diagnosis of Alzheimer's right if it
0: fits and nothing else is uh, ruled in. So we've, we've we've talked about this scary disease for a few minutes here, and uh, not to pile on the fear, uh, we do know that healthy eating, healthy living, social and physical engagement at least improve functionality. Uh, pretty much every drug known to humankind, uh, anti-inflammatories, vitamin E, vitamin C, tau protein, uh, immunizations, uh, anticholinergics, uh, probably other medications that I'm not thinking of. How do those affect the disease progression outside of the lifestyle things, outside of the optimization of those things that are in our control? T- tell us a little bit, and I know it's kind of depressing news, but <laughs> how do those things work? Do they work?
1: Well, the FDA-approved uh, classes of medication, meaning the NMDA receptor antagonist, nemendor or memantine, is one category and the other is the cholinesterase inhibitors, which there are three on the market, classically Dinepazil or Aricept. Um, You can boost acetylcholine levels a little bit by blocking its breakdown. What's the impact? Mild. It slows down the rate of decline gradually in mild to moderate and even up to severe cases. Some impact. These are changes that are not usually visible to the patient or the physician or the family. But sometimes there's a difference, so we can say some mild impact. It may slow slow down the the loss. For the Namenda, it's similar in the monotherapy or add-on therapy. It's going to have some beneficial effects. It's slowing down the decline, but nothing leads to a plateau that we have that is an FDA-approved molecule. And if you use other substances, you bring up um, anything Uh, from Prevagen advertised endlessly to uh, 100 different supplements, you won't find any good, well-designed, peer-reviewed studies saying you should be doing that we will say, sure, you might try that. It probably isn't going to change anything. I'm not aware of harm, so feel free, but I'm going to guide you on what I know to be most likely the case and use that as the sad reality. And when people say, so you're saying it doesn't really matter, right? And I'm saying, not exactly, but it doesn't matter very much. And if people say, so should I spend my money on this? I say, "Mm, I would. But I also realize that it's not a major impact. And then I start flipping towards, well, let's consider clinical trials. Let's see about options you might have at an advanced center doing some of the research. Because that is getting much more promising. We're not there, but significantly promising.
0: So... Yeah, thank you for that information. And here's, as we wrap things up here in the next five minutes, one of the areas that uh, I would love to get your opinion on is this is the great circle of questions. What came first? The insomnia, the sleep disturbance, the sedative hypnotic, and the cognitive impairment. That that loop of people who take sleep aids are uh, more likely to have dementia. Dementia is more likely to cause sleep disturbances. What What's what's causing what in that loop? I've got uh, probably more patients than I wish have been on benzos over the last several years. There seems to be an upwelling of anxiety. I don't know why. Oh, yeah, maybe a pandemic. Uh, so I have a lot of patients who are having sleep disorders, and uh, I don't want to cause dementia by giving um, them an occasional benzo or Ambien, Uh, what do you think about that? What's causing what?
1: Well, the best evidence we have is that it isn't causing dementia. So it's more likely the underlying pathophysiologic state of Alzheimer's when present is the cause of dysfunction. And those drugs should be thought of as exacerbating the underlying problem, not causing it. We don't really have good evidence that chronic benzo use leads to dementia. It's not known to be a neurotoxin. It does impact you. It's part of the usual comment or warning in any older patient is may lead to unexpected or unwanted slowing of cognition, but it isn't a permanent irreversible problem. But it is often the case that it's questioned and we say, look, it depends. We have to put it all in perspective. If you aren't sleeping and this is highly effective, we may, on balance, think it's in the person's best interest to give them some
0: sleep because lack of sleep will, for sure, make you have more trouble in your cognition. Yeah, it'll make you grumpy as can be, too. Man, give me sleep. one night without sleep. Whew, right. I don't want to be in my office that day. Right. Uh, yeah. No, it affects everybody. Um, and interestingly, the the FDA, hot off the presses, has has just updated the black box warning on benzodiazepines. They haven't actually. Written the new black box, but they have sent out all the language and the changes uh, which are occurring. And in fact, we have a, a podcast recording on that, which yeah. uh, will be available. Uh, it's uh, in- interesting stuff. So let's have you wrap things up here. Talk a little bit, maybe a nice summation. I'm a physician who's been practicing, well, I've been practicing for going on 26 years now. You've been practicing, what, 28 or so? Uh, you know, every now and then I'll forget things. I'll have to look stuff up that maybe I used to not, uh, give me some things to think about that would take me from just forgetfulness to maybe seeking out either an internist or neurologist, and then wrap it up finally with just the interventions that you would recommend somebody who wants to keep a healthy brain, uh, as long as possible.
1: Yeah, I think we're in a new era where it's important to recognize any cognitive complaint as potentially relevant, particularly if you're after age 50 or 60, and talk to your physician and say, here's my concerns, and let your story be known so we can sort through it, because we're getting more tools to diagnose earlier. We're going to get more advanced imaging soon. And likely, within a few years, we'll have some therapies that we might use to slow down the disease process. That is something to be monitored. We've got a molecule sitting at the FDA, for which they're probably going to rule in a committee by February, of a monoclonal antibody against amyloid that may lead to a first in over 20 years on the market. So look out for that. Use the Alzheimer's disease, ALZ.org website for information. You're gonna get this data in popular press immediately because it's one of the hottest topics there is. And then go back to living a healthy life. Social interaction, physical engagement, intellectual engagement, and eating a healthy Mediterranean-based diet and do the best you
0: can. And you're gonna be just fine. Awesome. No, Alan, that's great. That's really useful information. It's, it's obviously, it's fun to banter with your brother who's a doctor. Yeah. and. Uh, these are areas of great interest to us. And then also of interest to you, I got a call last night from mom and she said she uh, she's always loved me more than you. So just putting that out there. She told me that today and she said she lied, but she thought it made you feel good. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Great to see you. Hi again. This is Eric Zacharias with a little bit of add on after some internet research. In fairness, I did say I made up the fact that there are no grandmasters over a certain age. It turns out, That not only did I make it up, that's also incorrect. Uh, There is an enormous amount of information and data on the internet regarding grandmasters, the age at which people started playing chess, the age at which they became grandmasters, the age at which people won world chess championships etc fascinating information i don't think there's any group on the planet that is more into data analysis than chess players so if you want to go down that hole uh, have at it so that information uh, now stands corrected i will not use that uh, when i talk to my patients uh, probably uh, i may continue to allow us to be determined on the upside, though, if you're listening this far, I can tell you there is a Netflix show called The Queen's Gambit, which talks about chess. It is, a, I think, a five- or six-episode series, uh, about an hour long. It's a fascinating, fun drama about a woman who becomes a grandmaster chess champion. Really, really a a fun watch. So uh, even though I did uh, get corrected on the the age at which people become grandmasters, I can at least maybe redeem myself by making a good recommendation for some fun television. Hi, this is Eric Zacharias yet again for what we're calling our breaking news segment on Within Normal Limits. And this is the first one we've recorded but this is really some important breaking news that I think is important to share, and I guarantee you will hear more about this in the, uh, in the medical literature. So just a couple weeks ago, uh, the FDA sent out a communication saying they were going to update the benzodiazepine uh, drug class uh, black box warning. And this is going to be a big deal uh, because there are some pretty substantive changes coming down the, uh, down the pike with this. So I'm going to read to you some of the information from the FDA drug safety communication uh, that came out and uh, editorialize a little bit on it. But uh, the bottom line is the FDA just announced, uh, quote, to address serious risks of abuse, addiction, physical dependence, and withdrawal reactions, the FDA is requiring the boxed warning be updated for all benzodiazepine medications. Uh, they say that the uh, current information, even including the black box, doesn't adequately address the warnings, including serious risks and harms associated with these uh, with these medications. And they go on to say that even when taken at recommended doses, uh, you know, we, we all know this, but benzodiazepines can lead to misuse, abuse, and addiction, including overdose and uh, and death, and uh, particularly when combined with other medications, uh, opioids, uh, alcohol, and illicit drugs. They also go on to mention that the physical dependence uh, occurs when taken, even as prescribed over a, over, over a prolonged period of time, and this withdrawal can lead to seizures, which can be life-threatening. And the reason why they're updating it, and again, you know, the black box is the most uh, prominent warning that the FDA has. Uh, They're saying they're updating it because they think uh, benzos are not being prescribed optimally, and they think by doing this, healthcare professionals Uh, We'll think a a little bit more deeply and monitor them a little more closely when prescribing these. A couple other points, again, which should be something we're doing already, but it probably is something you're going to want to document in the medical record, uh, is deciding when prescribing benzodiazepines if the benefits outweigh the risks. Now, you don't have to write the entire textbooks of Harrison's when you make this decision. What I do in my practice is, you know, just discuss with the patient the risks and benefits of taking benzodiazepines and including addiction and withdrawal. And I think that's probably adequate at this time. Uh, the other thing that they point out, uh, again, kind of common sense, but this is going to be in the black box, uh, limit uh, the dosage and duration and monitor the patient for signs of abuse misuse or addiction. and the the key thing which is really emphasized in this uh, Drug safety communication is when people have been on that that benzodiazepines for a period of time, is making sure it's a gradual uh, taper. Uh, There's quite a bit of literature they cite about patients who have had uh, withdrawal seizures, Um, and that's going to be really really important. So a couple other points Uh, in 2019, which is the most recent uh, data they have, uh, there were over 92 million benzodiazepine prescriptions, and sometimes I think half of those are, are my patients. I seem to have an uptick in benzo patients during the, during the time of COVID and during the political instability we're experiencing. But nonetheless, a lot of people are writing benzos, and what I've noticed in my practice is my patients who used to have benzo prescriptions years ago are calling up and saying, can I have a few Xanax? Can I have a few Alprazolams? Uh, you know, what I would recommend is when you have uh, patients with that request, would be to either see them in person or do a telehealth visit, go through the risks and benefits. Remember, the informed consent is the conversation, so have a shared decision-making conversation with the patients before just writing them and saying, oh, it's a stressful time. Here's, uh, here's 30 volumes. Uh, I think that that's probably going to be outside of what's considered within the medical standard, even if they've uh, been on them before. So let's go through – uh, some of the uh, specific information they have for healthcare professionals. And by the way, the, the, I actually, I called the FDA, and believe it or not, somebody picked up the phone on the first ring and was unbelievably helpful. So chalk one up to competent uh, bureaucracy. There's something to be said for good civil servants. But, uh, yeah, this person was great, and they said, look, we haven't actually written the black box warning yet. This is saying what's going to be in the new black box warning So it may be a few months before you actually see this. So hot off the presses from uh, Copic within normal limits. How about that for service? Um, So they're saying uh, the FDA is going to require this black box warning to include benzos are at risk for abuse, misuse, addiction, physical dependence, and withdrawal reactions. So have those in your informed consent discussion with your patients, right? Abuse, misuse, addiction, physical dependence, and withdrawal reactions. Those are the key points. Uh, and you should do this already, although again we get busy and we see people have been on these before, and we just renew them um, before prescribing uh, you know assess each patient's risk and especially if somebody has uh, opioids. I just will not prescribe benzos with opioids because there's a essentially a tenfold risk of uh, cardiac or I'm sorry of respiratory uh, suppression at night. Um, And so that's just something that was just outside the scope of what I do in my practice. The other thing is if you have people on benzos and they say they fill three or four prescriptions, don't just say, I'm going to cut you off. You really should discuss with them the importance of a taper and do a gradual taper to reduce the risk of, of withdrawal symptoms. Um, and then seeing the patients frequently. Now when I, when I prescribed ADD medications, I, see my patients every four months. For benzos, I haven't been doing that, but I think it's probably going to be something uh, that will become more within the, uh, within the standard of care. And uh, a few interesting facts, like I said, that a lot of people are prescribing benzodiazepines. The number of emergency department visits for complications of benzodiazepines was 170,000 uh, last year. And for opioids, it was 130,000. So, so benzos are resulting in more ER visits, probably riskier medications. So that's basically it. I just I wanted to get this breaking news out there to people who uh, listen to this podcast, let you know, you know in the practice of medicine, uh, the world's complicated right now. I get that. But just know benzodiazepines or something you should probably have an informed consent discussion with the patients, should document that, and just get ready for the black box warning coming out. And that's something I'm going to do. I'm not going to just renew them uh, like I have for a year and see somebody for the annual physical. I want to monitor them a little more closely. Uh, okay, well, I hope that was uh, useful information, and thanks for listening to this breaking news from uh, within normal limits.